good afternoon, everyone listening to our podcast. Round Guy coming uh, to you live via the genius of Alexander Graham Bell, my buddy Dave Johnson, uh, handling the technical affairs. But our special guest, and when I say special guest, I mean it, we are talking today with one of the most talked about Major League Baseball players uh, currently, and I'm uh, referring to our good friend, Pablo Lopez, star pitcher for the Miami Marlins. Pablo, good afternoon. How are you, buddy? Good afternoon. I'm doing very, very good, and I'm very excited to be a part of this podcast with you. As you should be. You know, a lot of people are calling me, bugging me to get on the show, and I have to tell them, no, you're not qualified yet. You're not, uh, you're not worthy yet of being on this program, but you, sir, you are. Uh, Pablo Lopez and I say that knowing that you're really just starting to kind of come onto your own. Uh, there were times when you could walk down the street and nobody would recognize you. And yet now uh, you have been, uh, been very successful, especially this season with the Miami Marlins. And when the winter meetings started and, and the uh, trade deadline approached, your name has been mentioned more so than probably a lot of the the other big name players, because any team that needs pitching is considering you. and And on one hand, that's got to make you feel pretty good that that people want you. On the other, it's there's some uncertainty that goes with it. But uh, prior to getting into all that, let's back up, uh, Pablo. You are from Venezuela, and when you signed, how old were you? Were you out of college? Were you out of high school? Walk us through what took place early on for Pablo Lopez to become a star major league pitcher. Yeah, so uh, as a Latin American baseball player, we become eligible to sign the July 2nd after our 16th birthday. So in my case, that was July 2nd of 2012. So on July 4th, the Seattle Mariners offered me to sign me to become a part of their minor league system, and that's the day it happened. So I signed as an international free agent in the year of 2012 with the Seattle Mariners, and you are not eligible to play that very year. So I, st I started my professional career the following year in 2013 on the now extinct Venezuelan Summer League. It is just like the Dominican Summer League, but it was back when teams used to have the complexes in Venezuela. So I was part of the one of the last two seasons of that league back home. And so you actually ended up in the uh, Midwest League here in Iowa with Seattle before uh, you were then traded to the Miami Marlins. So... Talk to us about uh, your experience in the Midwest League. Yeah, so right before I got called up, I was in extended spring training. So like after camp breaks for the full full uh, full season teams like Clinton, the guys that did not make the cut, they we stayed back in the complex as part of extended spring training. So for the first two months of the Clinton season, I was actually down in Arizona as part of that extended spring training camp. And then something went down with a couple of starters. One got called up, one got injured, and then that's when they gave me the chance to go to Clinton, Iowa, 
And I really didn't know much about Iowa other than the Clinton Lumber Kings were in that state as part of the Seattle Mariners uh, organization, minor league, minor league season. So I was very excited. But at the same time, it was, uh, it was, it was an experience that I wasn't prepared for because before you play any full season team, uh, league, you know, like the team, they arrange your housing. The team gives you, like, they pay for everything. So going into my first full season experience, you know, I had I had to find a place to live. I had to find the means and ways to get to and from the ballpark. So it wasn't only about the baseball, but it was a very eye-opening experience of if I chose to keep going in the baseball world, all the other things I was going to have to learn how to do, all the other things that played a part in that in the baseball life so i got called up to clinton i want to say like may 27th and i made my midwest league debut in burlington against the burlington bees and i think after that i think like once i realized okay like i'm gonna be teaching in front of fans i'm going to be traveling but uh, long bus rides i'm gonna be you know like it's i'm gonna be here for the next 80 games so i think once i realized that then he came back to me like i'm also here to keep working to develop myself as a play as a player as a pitcher as a person as a teammate so i think i really i really took that to to my heart and like okay i'm gonna continue to get better and it worked out that that clinton lumber kings team i think we won 86 games that year so it, it was such a great and fun atmosphere to be a part of I think it made the transition that much easier. So I was able to go from being in um, spring training camp to go be a part of the Clinton Lumber Kings. But then everyone was so welcoming and everyone was everyone was so in sync, in tune with the things we wanted to accomplish that I think that really helped me. Okay, and during what you were just describing as far as uh, being called up to Clinton and having to find a place to live and traveling and this. How many times do you think you ate at McDonald's? <laughs> a lot, but honestly, not as many times as I ate in Jimmy John's. Jimmy oh, John's okay. saved my life in the minor leagues quite a few times. That's great. That's great. And now in the major leagues, the meal money is a little bit different, isn't it? Not only the meal money, but there is so much food available. Like from the time you get to the ballpark, there's already food there for us. Then we have pre-batting practice, post-batting practice, and then before the game. So, I mean, that is definitely uh, an upgrade. Because in the minor leagues, you only had the pre-game spread. It was only sandwiches and fruit. And in the post-game, it was catered. But now in the in the major leagues, you can see why it's the major leagues. You know, like it's it's an upgrade in in every single aspect. Yeah, you after the game, there's a spread, and and yet guys still end up going out to dinner. I, I would think you would just camp out in the clubhouse and eat what they offered there after the game, <laughs> and then you're you're done, right? For the most part, for the most part, just sometimes, you know, guys have family over, family in town, or we're at a city where we know people. So we, um, like, if those people come and watch us, watch us play, we'll arrange a dinner or something. But for the most part, we really take advantage of the food that they provide at the, at the clubhouse. So, like, a lot of times, 
you'll see players skipping breakfast just because they know like when they get to the field there's gonna be food there so it's definitely an advantage but i'm 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 always waking up early especially on the road i like to explore i like to walk around so and when i'm on the road i get up i start walking 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 then i find i'll find like a local breakfast place that i can go to so at least i know i'm getting my breakfast and but then dinner time is usually the post game spread uh, okay that's fantastic pablo lopez is our guest uh today and he is uh, one of the starting uh, pitchers with the miami marlins baseball team walk us through pablo because uh so many of us uh, young boys envisioned a career in, in baseball and unfortunately weren't good enough to make it. You, on the other hand, have done that. And you started out and signed with the C uh, Seattle Mariners. And then walk us through how you were told you'd been traded to the Miami Marlins and what was your reaction to that, and what had to happen for for you once they told you you'd been traded? Yeah, so I got traded in, I want to say July 20th, 2017. And funny enough, that was the day after an update. So I was in the Modesto, with the Modesto, not in the California League, which is very close to the Bay Area. So the day before, it was an update. So me and my host family, we took a trip to San Francisco, to see the Golden uh, Golden Gate Bridge and all the, the fun things, and we got back at a kind of like kind of like a late time. So the next morning, I wake up and then uh, I see all these text messages, all these missed phone calls, all these the manager telling me like uh, call me ASAP, and then I was like, what's going on? And then like I finally realized that I was, I actually got traded to the Miami Marlins with three other players. One of those three other guys was at the time in the same team as I was, the Modesto Naps. So that was definitely it was a it was a different. It was unexpected, and it, it it was like a a moment I couldn't I couldn't know how to figure out because you know Seattle was a team I had been for five years. The first I mean the only five years of my professional career at the time was uh, had only been with the same team. So like obviously. I created a bond and, a, and an affection to the team, but then I was—I quickly realized that baseball is still and will always be a business. So these things are very much out of my control, and I just have to embrace whatever comes my way. So obviously, I remember my host family was kind of upset because I was the first player they hosted that got traded during the season, and then I just—I remember uh, they drove me to the stadium to pack up my bags, and then. That was my first introduction to some of the Mar the Marlins workers because you know like they had to figure out my plane tickets, they had to figure out my travel arrangements to where I was going to go, to my uh, medical exams and all that. So it was it was a very busy 24 hours from from the moment I found out to then being in Florida to getting all the tests done to then go to the Jupiter complex to report to the high A. Jupiter hammerhead so that it was a very busy 24 hours but you know like at the same time getting traded means that there's a, t a team out there that is very interested in what you can give what you can do on the field 
So it's it's not that Seattle was saying goodbye to me. It was the Miami Marlins welcoming me because they saw something in me. So that was very encouraging. I can imagine. Yeah, I can imagine. Like I said, I that's all we can do is imagine because we weren't good enough to sign and play professionally. So we are living our professional baseball career through you today. How's that, Pablo? So I, lo- I love the sound of that. Okay. Uh, so you now are a Miami Marlin, and you start out, like I said, being tested. I'm sure they want to look at your arm strength and, and, and this and that. All right, so, uh, but the most important call that you've gotten was after a season or so in the, uh, the minors with Miami, walk us through the call you get where they say, hey, you're going to the big leagues, and how you felt at that point. Yeah, so I remember it was June of 2018, so only 11 months after getting traded. I was in AAA with the New Orleans Baby Cakes. That was a funny name. AAA for the Marlins. Uh, and then I remember I was getting ready for my start against the Iowa Cubs. And then the AAA manager comes to me because I was doing my reports on the iPads and looking at the tendencies of the batter, he's like, oh, like you really like doing the the report stuff, the analytics. I'm like, yeah, I mean, I always try to take advantage of all the resources and stuff. So like, uh, so then the following day, I start pitching against the Iowa Cubs. And during the first inning, I'm, I've only thrown like eight or nine pitches. There's someone warming up in the bullpen. I didn't think much of it. Then I get, I get through the first inning. And then I go back out to the second inning because I only threw like 11 pitches. And then they take me out during the first inning. And I thought like maybe it's one of those back down starts that they call, you know, to make sure to keep an eye on your workload, to make sure that uh, give you one of those uh, slow down starts to keep you in shape, to keep you healthy. But then some of the other starters and really um, players, I don't know if they know, like if, if they've seen that happen before, but they were start they were starting to tell me like, that, that means that's something good. That means you're going to go to the big leagues and stuff like that. And obviously I didn't think much of it. I didn't really believe them or anything. So, and, and nothing happened after the game. Like I didn't get the call or anything, but either the next day or two days after that, uh, the manager called me to the office and he was like, Hey, just so you know, like whatever happened in the game, I know we only let you go 20 pitches. That's something we do. And I just want to ask you something. Uh, you're very good with reports, right? And I was like, yeah, I mean, I take advantage of it. He said, well, what do you know about the New York Mets? And like, because I watch the Marlins games, even when I was in the Marlins, I was like, well, I know their lineup. I know who they have. And if you give me an iPad, I can get, I can give you a report in 20 minutes. He said, well, well, don't do, don't give, don't do it to me. Uh, do it to Don Mattingly because you're going to face the New York Mets on Saturday in Miami. And that's how they, that's how they told me. And what did you do? Wet your pants? What? what how did you react? No, I just, I, 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 I just, I didn't know how to react. I just like made an uncomfortable laugh because like, are you joking and stuff? Then everyone, all the old coaches that were there got really happy. And then they just told me congratulations and like just, and then they tell me that things, you know, like uh, it doesn't matter the stage. It doesn't matter who you're facing. Uh, try to be yourself. Don't try to do anything different because the things you've been doing. It's what got you this call to the big leagues right now. So they tell you all those kinds of things, and then it was I, it was again another 
uh, exhausting couple hours getting a lot of phone calls, a lot of emails from all the uh, travel directors to set up all the travel arrangements. And then it was, it feels like a blur, but I, I know I was very, very excited. And were you going to meet uh, the Marlins in New York or were they home in Miami at that time? To, no, they, uh, they were home in Miami. So I flew out Friday morning from New Orleans to Miami, landed in Miami, went to the stadium, practiced with the team. I did all the media stuff. And then the next day was that Saturday. And that's when I, I made my debut. And how did that go? It went well. I remember it was a tough matchup because it was the Mets and the Grum was pitching. Um, but I remember it was a quality start, six, inning, six innings, two runs. Both runs were solo homers. Uh, and after my sixth inning, we were down 2-0. And then the offense was able to score three runs on the Grum, which ended up giving me the win on my debut. So that was really fun. Oh, I can imagine. Again, I, you know, that's all we can do is imagine how that must have been for somebody. Now, And now that you've made the big leagues, it makes sense that you're there to stay because you have, it seems like you've gotten better each year. And, of course, I follow you whenever you pitch and, and, and uh, enjoy doing so. And you've become now such a prominent uh, pitcher uh, for the Marlins that, like I said, to start this uh, interview out, you're being talked about, uh, or a lot of teams are expressing interest in having you be a part of their staff. So, you know, the biggest question we've got now for you is, are you still a Miami Marlin? Yeah, yeah, I'm still a Miami Marlin. Um Although I am very aware of, like you said, like all the things that have been talked about even from July when the trade deadline was fast approaching. And I was I was aware of everything that was going on. And I was just, it was the first time I was like, you know, like I was being talked about that much, especially when it came about possibly being traded. So I just, I didn't know how to, I didn't know what to think of it other than just like, okay, I'm just going to treat these as rumors as rumors. Cause you know, during the season, you still have to get ready for your next start. So I was like, I'm, I was like, I'm not going to let this distract me. I'm going to treat this and just, just rumors until something actually happened. And then right now it's the off season and there's still, you know, a lot of like those, a lot of articles, a lot, a lot of rumors about teams being interested, but it's one of those things that in, until it's not official, I'm just, in my mind, just preparing for next season while still with the Marlins. So uh, until something actually happens, uh, I'll, I'll think of them as rumors, but obviously I'll, I still have family members reaching out to me, asking me, like, what does this article mean? Uh, what does this mean? And, and this and this and that. And I just tell them, like, it just means that teams are just inquiring because they're looking to add pitching. But then for, for, for the most part, it's just... I'm just getting ready to to play next year as a Marlin. Now, is there, as you think about it, and as you said, the, the the fact is that yeah, they're just rumors, and there there are teams that have expressed some interest, uh, but but until something is formally done, you're going to pitch next season for the Miami Marlins. Uh, is there any team out there that you've thought about you might like to go to if, in fact, a, a trade uh, occurs? Well, 
I, I do know with all the rumors and stuff, especially in that late July, right before the deadline, some of the teams that apparently were inquiring the most were playoff contenders. And, like, obviously, when you play a professional sport at this level, you want to do the highest accomplishment, which is winning a championship. So I think if, you know, like, if Destiny has it for me to go to a different team, if it's a team that has the opportunity to, you know, like, go all the way to win the very last game of the season, then I think that would be an experience and it would be something that I would really embrace. And I think it would just, it would raise the expectations. It would raise the level of focus to get better. And it would just raise that mentality that collectively as a team, if we give our our max effort, our best intent, you know, we can accomplish something like that. So I think just being a part of a playoff contending team, if that's going to be the case, would be would be an incredible experience. What about, uh, you know, numbers fascinate me. And, and when a player wears a certain number and then they tend to want to wear that number throughout their career and and sometimes a player that's traded to another team and there's a player already wearing the number that they would want. They sometimes barter back and forth, uh, you know, some kind of money or, or, or some material object to, to, to get that number. Uh, you started out with the Marlins and you, in spring training, you were wearing number 78. Yep. And the reason I know that is because I have that jersey here in my home. Uh, but now you wear number 49. And yeah. so uh, have you become attached to that number? Or if you were to be traded and signed with another team, is that not the number you would want? Or uh, where, how, do you, how do you look at number 49 that you wear currently? Yeah, I definitely grew close to that number. I didn't get to pick it. I got called up to Miami, and then that was the number they had in my locker. But I, I was always a huge Jake Arrieta fan, especially when he had that amazing run with the Cubs in 2015, all those years, and he used to wear number 49. So I'm like, I mean, 49 is a good pitching number. And then then and, and then I just I, I grew – uh, with it, and and I like that. It's a good pitching number. It's been good. It's been a good number for me. And then, yeah, if I get to go to a different team, you know, like all those things you talk about, I'll ask about forty nine. But I think it's not something so extreme that it's like I have to do it. You know, you hear those stories of guys buying the number for a Rolex, a motorcycle, and all those things. And, but I would de- it would definitely be my first uh, my first choice. It would be the first number I would ask for. I see. What about superstitions? In addition to the to the number thing, uh, are there certain things you do or don't do on on game day? Uh, do you have any superstitions? And if so, what what are they? 
Uh, I always try to be skeptical about those because I know if I think about it, I'm going to want to do it every day. But then because I'm thinking about that, I know whenever I have a good game, the next day I want to try to replicate it. So, uh, But one thing I do for the most part, I, I like pitching with syrups. It's not so much a superstition. It's uh, what my dad used to wear when he used to play back in Venezuela as an amateur and just for fun. So I do that. And then... I, I do try to pitch with the same cleats, and then um, if after a, if there, and then if there's a rough game in there, then I'll switch up to different uh, different cleats. Uh, but then I use the same gloves. I try to use the same hat. Just when it starts getting those stains, I'll clean it. Uh, same belt. I just mix up the shoes here and there. But then. Um, obviously there's routines that I do do all the time, you know, the same stretching routine, the same amount of throws when I'm warming up in the bullpen. Uh, I, I use the same, the same exercises, the same time. I start at the same time, every single time it's a night game at, and then I start at the same time, every single time it's a day game. So I think like I'm very routine oriented or oriented. So it's not so much superstition, but I, when I, to find a routine, I try to stick with it I, as specific as I can. Okay, that makes sense. Uh, and, and talk about the stirrups, because in the beginning of the season, you wore the real high, the high stirrups there. You, uh, and then it seemed like the latter part of the season, uh, you had your pants down to about to the cleats. So did you change there? Was that uh, how did that come about? Yeah, like I said, I tried I tried to tell myself to be skeptical about that, but then I had a rough game in there, and I was like, you know what? And then I went through my locker, and I found those long pens, and, like, they're not baggy. I, I really don't like baggy pens. So I'm like, I mean, at least they're, they're not as baggy, so I'm going to give them a try. So I wore them for a bullpen session, and I was like, you know, it's not going to hurt to go for it. So I put on the long pants, and then I threw really well against the, the Phillies. I'm like, man, why not? Then I then I used the long pants again, and I threw really well against the Cubs. Then I was like, okay, this is going to be the real good challenge because uh, then my next game was going to be against the Mets, and the Mets gave me a lot of trouble early in the year. And I was like, you know what? They're two for two for now, so let's wear them again. And then I wore them in New York, and I threw a quality star and won the game. And then I, I wore the same pants for the last, well, the same style pants for the last four games of the season. Ah, uh, okay. All right. Pablo Lopez is our guest this afternoon. We're tickled to talk with him. Major League pitcher with Miami Marlins. Uh, when you talked about being in the minor leagues and you're at the ballpark and, and you're walking back to your apartment, this set, you're going around town, you're at McDonald's, you're eating at Jimmy John's. Uh, people probably didn't recognize you unless you were at the ballpark, right? And and at the ballpark, more so now than ever before, it seems like uh, professional athletes have to sign autographs. And it makes sense that now you're in the major leagues and have been for several seasons it makes sense that people are going to recognize you and it makes sense they're going to ask you for your autograph. And, and so uh, explain to us a little bit about what it was like to occasionally sign some young kids program or baseball and, 
and as you moved up into the uh, major leagues, now you're probably uh, asked a lot more often to sign this, sign that. What, what's your take on autographs? Uh, I really, I'm all for it. So, like, in the minor leagues, I, on my way of the minor leagues, I wasn't, like, a huge big-time prospect. So, like, I wasn't attacked to sign when I was in the minor leagues. But like you said, like the kids that would do their programs or when the minor league teams would release their yearly baseball cards, whenever someone would approach me, I really appreciated it. And I still remember those moments. And then as it started happening more, you know, like it, uh, the way I see it and that's how I, I, I think of it, it doesn't take that much effort to, you know, like make, do it for the kids to like, you know, and then like, when we're playing catch before the game and the gates are already open and there's people there, like if I have the time, like if it's not like right before the game or if like if I have to be somewhere doing something important, like I'll have all the time to, you know, like reach out to the kid who's handing me a ball or he has my baseball card and then just sign it for, because I remember when I was growing up in Venezuela, I would go watch, uh, winter ball, uh, winter baseball games, you know, and like a lot of ba- baseball players, big leaguers would be playing. And I remember those moments real, um, really making me happy. Like I have a memory of Miguel Cabrera signing a baseball for me, uh, Omar Vizquel signing a baseball for me when I was growing up in Venezuela during winter ball games. So I think I tried to put myself in their shoes because I was in their shoes 20 years ago. And then I, I try to do it and, like, if I had the time, I'll go one by one because I know it can make uh, someone's day. You sure can. And and uh, here's here's for autograph. I was like you when I was a kid. I I uh, I went to games and I wanted to get a player's autograph. And and I I find that even as an old guy now. I still have that enjoyment. You know, I didn't, I didn't stop, uh, you know, liking a, a player or an athlete to where I would, I would get beyond that and say, yeah, I, I used to collect autographs when I was a kid, but I, I don't do that anymore. I still do. I'm an old guy and I still get a kick out of getting a guy to sign a card or a ball. And, and the, the thing that seems to have happened in that transition is is that players or celebrities in general they think because I'm an old guy that I'm a dealer and that I'm obtaining the autograph to turn around and sell it and make money off them. So there seems to be in some cases uh, uh, celebrities and athletes that won't sign for an old guy like me because they think I'm, I'm trying to make money off them. And the fact is I'm still a kid when it comes to that, and I still enjoy collecting. So do you find that it's younger kids seem to be able to get it and and uh, the old people are getting left out? Is it, does that seem to you to be happening that way? Yeah, yeah. Uh, I, obviously being in the clubhouse around the guys and being around a lot of, uh, a lot of baseball players the last couple of years, like, uh, there's a lot of people that think that way, but then obviously you have the people that have like genuinely want it, want the autograph, you know, because they want it. You know, people like you 
So I don't see it. I like I I don't look at it like you know this person's trying to, you know, get it to them. Sadly, like if I have the time, I really don't mind signing for everyone. You know, whether it's a kid or you know someone a little older and stuff. Like I really don't mind. I think it comes with a job, and I enjoy doing it. I enjoy doing it because I know to someone it can mean a lot. You know the the thing that I've always thought was. You, you will never be asked to do anything simpler than write your name. And, and unless I come up to you and I've got 40 pictures and say, hey, could you sign all of these? Then I could see where you would say, no, I'll sign one and then that's it. Because if a guy comes up to you with 40 pictures, of course they're going to sell them. You know, uh, uh, so I get it that. That guys, and, and that's why when I've approached guys to sign a picture or uh, something, I'll ask them to personalize it to me. And that way it helps show them that I'm going to keep it and it's going to mean something to me and I'm not going to sell it. Yep. What about uh, your manager, your skipper? You were with Don Mattingly like the last what, three or four years, and he left uh, the Marlins, and he's now signed to be the bench coach with the Toronto Blue Jays. Uh, what did you, how did you get along with Skipper, your Skipper, Don Mattingly? I mean, he's Don Mattingly, you know. Obviously, we, everyone in baseball knows who he is, and, well, who he was as a player, I think everyone knows who he, what he means to the baseball community. So being under Don Mattingly's uh, as a manager, you know, like it was, it was truly a pleasure. And you know, he's a, he's, he's such a like professional. He's a very professional guy that he would not ask anything of you that he wouldn't do himself. You know, he asked for accountability. He was the first one to be accountable for, and like every single game, no matter the outcome, he asked like if you work hard. You know, I'm going to be there to defend you. I'm going to be there to let everyone know that you're doing the things the right way. And then every, everything he would preach, it was something that he would do because he knows that's what it takes to be in this game for so long. And I think just, you know, he was such a – he would give you so much confidence because he has, like, such good eyes, not only for hitting, because he will – he was such a good hitter that he can have a big input on pitching. So for a lot of our bullpen sessions, for the, all the starters, he would be there. And if he could find any way to help out, he would do it. So I think being under his guidance for the last five seasons for me was truly a great experience. A lot of players, or so it seems, and I, I've seen some interviewed and I've read some stories where uh, there are there are current players in the major leagues that aren't able to go back. You mentioned you're familiar with Mattingly and how good he was with the Yankees. But uh, before him, like guys like Mickey Mantle and the old, old guys like Babe Ruth and, and Ty Cobb, there are current players that aren't familiar and, and don't know who some of those guys were. So uh, knowing Mattingly and knowing that he had a successful uh, career with the Yankees prior to getting into coaching. Uh, did the players on your team, when you were 
away from him? Did, did you talk about Mattingly? Did you talk about his career? Did you talk? Did you know enough about? Because he was just up for uh, a special committee to possibly be voted into the Hall of Fame, and he, he missed by a few votes. But but uh, you know, I and a lot of people thought his credentials warrant him being inducted into the Hall of Fame. So did you and your teammates t- ever talk about Mattingly from that standpoint? Yeah, I mean, a lot of the position players know know who he was as a player. Some of the older pitchers knew about him. I know about him because my dad was a, he was a huge baseball fan, so he was always talking baseball with me and giving me a lot of baseball knowledge. And then some of the younger pitchers the last couple of years that would come up, like we'll find a time, we would find a time to, you know, like eventually the subject would be brought up and I was, and I was able to tell them like who he was as a player, you know, and then they would be like, wow, so he was really good. Because, you know, like a lot of the people getting called up nowadays are young and they might not know who he was as a player. So I had the opportunity to uh, tell a couple of the young pitchers like who Don Mattingly you know, the 10-time Gold Glover, the MVP winner was. And, and yet a lot of them go, what, he played? <laughs> he used to play? And they don't even know uh, Babe Ruth and Willie Mays, those kind of guys. All right, let, let's switch to a topic I'm sure you're going to have some, some thoughts about. Uh, we talked about Mattingly was a good hitter. And let's talk about your hitting, Pablo. Uh, and or lack thereof, because whereas you used to hit, now the DH is in is in your league, and you you don't have to. I, what are your thoughts about the DH and and, and your hitting? Uh, brief though it was. Well, selfishly, I at first I was not upset, but I was like, like hitting is such a fun aspect of of baseball, and when. He got taken away from us. Selfishly, I was like, man, I wish we still had it. But, you know, looking forward, and I know it's for the best. And, like, a lot of the pitchers, we saw the benefits from it. The biggest benefit from it from it was being able to pitch more, to pitch deeper into the game, because now they're going to have to pinch it for you. Because, you know, in previous years, you were dealing. You were through six innings scoreless for the game 0-0. Zero, zero. And then there's a guy on third with no outs. They're going to pinch it for you because they'd rather get the run and they know they can count on the bullpen. So I think the biggest thing we saw from having the DH was that we were pushed more to like our pitch count to pitch deeper into the games because now they didn't have to worry so much about the pinch hitting for you. So I think it's going to, I think it's, it, it was, it will be for the best of the game. You know, it gives more opportunities for some of the people that act, that actually hit for a living. And then, like, you're able to focus just on your pitching. You know, like, you come from a playing inning, you come sit on the bench and just, just focus about the next inning. You come from a rough inning, you're able to just sit down and think about what you can do better the next inning. So I think there 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 is a lot of positive things about having the DH in both leagues now. All right, but prior to that happening, can you tell us about uh, your first major league hit? Yeah, he was against Joe Chassin from the Brewers. Uh, it's, I don't, I, I don't think it was the first pitch of the at bat, but 
when I'm growing up, I used to play the outfield, so I hit for quite a bit, and I knew I had a good swing. So I, every every time I went to the plate, I wanted to swing as hard as I could, and I knew if I ran into one, it could be a a good contact. So I think it was a fastball, middle away. I hit it kind of late. I still hit it with a barrel, and it was a hard line drive over the uh, shortstop head, and it was a single. I was very happy about it. As well, you should be. At least you can say now you you know you had a uh, a hit. Now was that is that the only one you've had, or were there a couple more or two after that before the DH rule came into play? No, I think I had ten more. I think I have eleven hits in the major leagues. Oh, there you go. Yeah, well, that's uh, eleven more than I had. That's awesome. That is great. Now, uh, what about you know? So the focus on the pitching and everything. This is something that I've I've been curious about, and and, and sports talk people uh, get arguments about this all the time. Because a moment ago we alluded to the old time players, all right, like Bob Feller, and, uh, Johnny Vandermeer, and, and some of these guys that would be called on to pitch the entire game, you know, all nine innings and extra if it was tied, and and so. Uh, today, pitchers go about five, maybe six innings, and then the middle relief pitchers come in, and the then the late inning relief pitchers come in, and then your closer. Uh, what are your thoughts on because because I think here's the argument back in the day, uh, as opposed to currently. Pitchers today are bigger and stronger, and there's better nutrition. There's better travel, uh, and and so pitchers today uh, would seem to have uh, better strength to pitch further than they do. And yet, the relief pitcher in the bullpen is counted on more so than ever before. Uh, Talk to us a little bit about what you think the difference from back then was to today and, and the emphasis on a, a starting pitcher now not going the entire distance and many times not getting credit for a win or a loss because the bullpen takes over and is such a prominent part of the game today. Yeah, I think if you ask any starter before the game starts, our mentality is go all nine innings. All nine innings, because you know we condition our body and our mind to be able to start and finish the game ourselves. But obviously, it goes beyond that. It goes deeper than that, you know. And nowadays, with there's all that data, there's so much information out there, you know, that proves like later in the game, if we bring a fresh arm with a that looks a little different than the guy that's thrown the first six or seven innings. You know, if we bring someone from the left side now, uh, we notice that these hitters' advantages go down. So that's what they call matchups. So now a lot of things are matchups because they have all the data. They have a huge database of all of these uh, made-up scenarios that if you bring this guy in this situation, this is the most likely outcome to happen. And then... Uh, I think a lot of that, um, it's just about creating that a little advantage because, you know, like now you have uh, seven, eight guys out in the bullpen that, you know, if the game 
the game needs it, like they will be able to provide you a fresher arm with a different look that might help you either like keep the game going the way it is or get out of a jam situation. So I think matching up is being a big part of why a lot of starters are nowadays. You know, not going as big, but if you ask every single starter, our goal, our goal, our mentality is go all night because you know, like we take a lot of pride into that, but obviously. We don't get to make those decisions because that's why there's manager, there's pitching coach, bullpen coach, quality assistant control coach. They're always on top of that information in those matchups. So I think a lot of times they play that information game of bringing a fresh arm that looks a little different. Like this guy's righty over the top, let's bring in a lefty slow three quarter. And then it's just, it's just creating those like simulations. And then when the, when the game comes, uh, when game time comes, they do, they give those things a try. Okay. All right. We're talking with Pablo Lopez is our guest this afternoon, star pitcher for the Miami Marlins. Is there a guy when you're pitching Pablo and there's a guy in the on deck circle, uh, that you just hate to see <clears throat> a guy that you don't like to pitch to because he is such a stud and you're unsure what to throw him and, and just, uh, in the past, he's just taken you out of the park, and you go, oh, no, I don't want to face this guy. Is there that guy on any team's roster that you're that comes to mind? And guys like Freddie Freeman, they're, guy, they're guys that, it's not that you don't want to face them, it's just that there's no way, there's no a scripted way that you can get, it, get the guy out. But at the same time, if you look at it that way, since there's no a way to get the guy out that you can just throw about anything because if he hits anything that I can throw anything so it just it makes it like a fun little challenge for you to try new things you know if I you usually don't throw curveballs when you're behind in the count perfect time to do it you know because if I throw a fastball he's likely to hit it if I throw the change he's likely to hit it so I think it's just those at bats that if you embrace them they can make a fun little challenge so like guys like Prima that give me and a lot of other writing pitchers are a lot of trouble. So uh, it's just those it, it's just those fun at that, that if you challenge yourself and you get the successful outcome, then maybe you realize that you can do something you didn't know you can do. So I think it's those fun little moments where you can, if you push yourself, you might find that you can do something you didn't know you could do. Okay. All right. That sounds good. Let me ask you this. So you said Freddie Freeman. And, and uh, I was watching you throw in Miami this past season. And I I am a big fan of Kyle Schwarber uh, for the Cubs. And then he's, I think he's now, he was with Red Sox. And the guy, she's bounced around. Now he's with Washington, I think. Anyway, uh, and I hate to bring this up, but uh, uh, he took you, he took you deep. Yep. And it was it was a hell of a shot into the right. I mean, it was way upper deck. Uh, you know, he really and and he is considered a home run hitter, and rightfully so uh, because he's he's pretty good at it, and he's not a very big guy. So let's say a guy like that takes you deep, and uh, so the next time he comes up, are you thinking about dusting him? Are you thinking about? <laughs> You know, I I think I already know your answer, but but does that cross your mind at any point 
I'm going to hit this guy because he has beaten me to a pulp, you know, the last 10 times that he's faced me. Now the mentality goes to, I need to make a better pitch. Like I think the homer you're thinking about, he hit it last year in 2021. And I was going back and forth between changeups away, fastballs in, and he's really quick inside. So if you're going in, it either has to be well up or, you know, in a little up, but like still like competitive pitch. And I was trying to go up and in, and it wasn't neither up enough nor, nor in enough. So he took me this. And then this year, he hit another homer up with me on his third about of the night. So the first about of the night, I threw him a 1-2 changeup, broken by drum ball to second base. Second at bat, I was actually behind in the count. I gave him the changeup, and then he hit a shallow pop-up to left field. Here at bat comes, obviously, I know he's a smart hitter, so he has the changeup in his mind. So same thing, I go fastball away, then I think I go in for a ball, and then I think I threw him another changeup, and I mean, he had already seen plenty of it. And it was not in the best spot. Like, when you have a hitter as dangerous as he is, and you're going to go with a pitch you've used twice to get him out, you better get it to a good spot. And it was a good spot if it would have been the first at-bat of the night, but it was the third time, of, the third at-bat of the night. So he had to be in a better spot. So it's just those kinds of battles and batters that will keep you on your toes, make that, making sure that you have to be specific. This past season, and I, and I and I knew your answer was, you, you know, you, you, you're not the kind of guy that's going to hit somebody. But yet, you got thrown out of a game and uh, were alleged to have thrown purposely at, at uh, was it Ron Acuno, Acuna, who was the kid from the Braves that was the first batter you faced, and you hit him, and they threw you out of the game. Uh, yeah, that was Acuna from the Braves. Okay, and and is there some bad blood between the Marlins and the Braves that would have prevent or uh, been the reason? Because I thought it was just unfair to you. It looked like it was a pitch that got away from you. Yet he's the leadoff hitter, and and he got plunked. And rather than give you a warning, you know they they said they just they ejected you from the game. Talk to us a little bit about how all that happened. No, it was the first pitch of the game, and, I mean, he's one of probably the best leadoff here there is in the major leagues, and he's one of those guys that he's a righty, but he hits the ball to right field as he's, as, like, he's, like he's a lefty. So, like, anything that's middle away, out over, like, he's such a strong guy with a good swing that he can make a lot of damage, and it's not like every run counts, so, um, you know, like, we see the Braves 19 times a season, so we know that if you go in, it's safer than away, as long as you don't live it, live in, but then, obviously, you know, first pitch of the game, traditionally, a lot of times, it's a fastball, and a forcing fastball, so I'm like, okay, I'll throw a fastball, but I'll, let's try to go, like, let's try to hit the inside corner with a two-sing fastball, and then it just got away, but then, like, um, in the past, there was a moment, it was a long time ago, in the 2018 season, there was a moment there where some, a guy from us hit, uh, hit him, um, and then, like, that created a whole controversy, and I don't know if that's what the umpires used uh, for their decision or not, but I told him, like, that's just that's just how we 
try to pitch against him so we don't expose so much the outer part of the play because he's so good. Well, I was uh, aghast at, at uh, the umpire's reaction to that and, and, and the Braves actually as well because I thought, you know, it was unfair because uh, I could see what I thought was a, a pitch that just, you know, got away from you. Uh, you, this season, in addition to that, debacle you you uh you either set a record or you tied a record where you struck out and i forget the team it was against but you struck out the side the first second and third inning so nine guys in a row you strike out uh was that did that set a record or did that tie a record so that set the record for the most consecutive strikeouts to start a game Okay, all right, to start the game. Well, you had to be feeling good uh, that day and and, uh, had to feel like your stuff was really working. Now, what happened to the ball for the, uh, like, the ninth guy you strike out? What happened to the ball? Did you keep that? I don't have it. No one knew the record. The catcher threw the ball to the third baseman. Third baseman threw it into the stands. And and they tried to get it back for you, didn't they? I'm not sure if they did. It was unsuccessful. I have the eight strikeouts, but I don't have the nine. Do you, uh, and you should, rightfully so, are you building a, a collection, a, a game room at your home where you've got your trophy room set up, and do you keep things like that, or does that not much make much difference to you? It really doesn't make a difference to me. I do keep things like obviously like the eight strikeout ball. I'll keep I keep that first strikeout, first win, first hit, and then you know like any any other like like you know like this year I got pitcher of the month for April, and they gave me like a really nice pretty plaque, so that I'll keep. So like I'm not trying to build like this huge collection, but like things that I think that do mean a lot to me, then those things I'll keep. Okay. And, and that makes me want to ask you this question. And I know you're probably not going to be able to answer it other than how you feel about it personally. And you may have just kind of given us a, a tip as to how you, you feel about this. But I know that that you uh, own a, a championship ring when, when I believe you played for Modesto. You, you have a, a, a championship ring, right? And I believe it was from the Seattle organization. Yes. It was for right. season. All right. But I, I will, on an almost regular basis, hear, and not just baseball, but but uh, sports athletes in general, and, and whatever sport it is they're, they're playing. But, but many times you're going to hear in an interview where a player says, yeah, we're playing for the ring. We're playing for the ring. And, of course, that means a championship ring, and in your case, a World Series ring, in a, in a football player's KS Super Bowl ring. And but, but yet I hear these guys talk like that. And then I've noticed when I watch uh, these talk shows or the pregame or the postgame shows, there are guys uh, that are former pro- professional players that are now commentators and they don't wear their rings. Alex Rodriguez, uh, uh, let's see, 
Frank Thomas, who, who has a, a Hall of Fame ring, actually, but they don't wear them. And so I, I've gotten this idea to my head that, that players talk about winning the ultimate prize, which is a championship ring, but then very seldom do I see them wearing them. And, and I'm, I'm wondering why, if after they've fought so hard to win one, they then decide they're not going to wear it. Do you have any way you can kind of, and I know you can't speak for all these other guys, but, but how you might feel and, and what you may have heard other guys say why they don't wear their championship rings. I think it's more of a meaningful thing. Like obviously getting the ring means that you won the whole thing. And then 2021, I played with a guy who won a ring with the Boston Red Sox, Red Sox in 2018. And he told me, like, I do wear it, like, in special occasions, you know, like, if, like, if it's a special occasion where, you know, a lot of, like, oh, my old teammates are going to be there or, like, it's just, like, a very important, fancy, classy party, I'll wear it. But then I think a lot of the guys that do have the rings and don't wear them because, they, they just want to keep it, you know, they, they just want to save it, want to keep it somewhere looking nice, looking pretty, and staying, like, in good shape. But I think I think everyone really appreciates that. I just think some people may not wear it just to, I don't know, to not mess with it. I see. And that makes sense. Hey, uh, Pablo, I am just uh, tickled to get to visit with you. I hope that here soon you win a, a World Series ring. I, I hope you win so many of them. Eventually, you, you're going to give one to me. That's what I. That's what I hope. I hope you win about forty of those things. But in the meantime, uh, I just want to say thanks uh, for taking and and I. We, we've probably talked to you longer than anybody we've ever talked to. But it's because you're uh, such a gracious uh, guest, and and you've been very candid and and uh, volunteering your information and your story. I I just uh, uh, want to say thank you. Uh, we're gonna let you go now, but I wish you the best with whatever team it is that might uh, make an overture to sign you. And if not, then we'll enjoy watching you with the Miami Marlins next season. And if it's with another team, we'll still root for you that way as well. Uh, perhaps down the road we can have you on as a guest again. But until then, best of luck. Thank you so much. And and God bless you. Thank you for this uh, this interview. Very welcome. I really appreciate the invitation. And thank you for all the kind words. Awesome. Good luck, buddy. Thank you. All right, that wraps it up with Pablo Lopez, our guest this afternoon, a lengthy podcast with Round Guy Radio. Uh, by golly, we were tickled to have a current professional uh, baseball player on the air with us. That's it from Oskaloosa, Iowa.